millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Ian. How are you doing? Good evening. I'm okay. So, how are things there? Any news? Well, I mean, it's just a very pleasant evening. Uh, Speaking with Ian became a regular part of our lives for a while. When we weren't in West Cork, Ian would update us on what he'd been up to. Like when he self-published a book of his poetry, a plan he'd been working on way back before the murder accusation put things like that on hold, before he became a household name in Ireland. Enormous market in uh, Skibbereen last and I was selling my poetry for the first time. I had a few early editions, and I, I sold to quite a few interesting people, such as Jeremy Irons and Sinead Cusack, would you believe? Do you think they recognised you? Oh, did they? Do you, um, that's a silly question at this juncture. Right. <laughs> Slightly silly. I mean, do I, did I recognise them? Yes. Did they recognise me? Yes, of course. Ian's been criticised over the years for courting attention, for embracing his high-profile status, even though it comes from being a murder suspect and not from being a movie star. Anyway, I was thinking about your project the other night, maybe, actually. He was always thinking about our project. He'd have a new person we should speak to, an angle to pursue. He called it directing from the back seat. It was uncomfortable at times, wondering whether he understood that we wouldn't only tell the parts of the story he wanted us to. But sometimes it was easiest to just go with it. I was going to ask you this. How do you think we should start it? Well, I'd have to give that question some thought, but I could probably come up with an answer. Well, maybe, I don't know, maybe you started by talking to me. This is West Cork an Audible original series. I'm Jennifer Ford, 
I'm Sam Bungie, and this is episode six, The Englishman. The moment he came through the door, I thought, yeah, he's got something about him. John Hawkins was Ian's first boss back in the UK. John ran a local news agency and was working out of an attic office back then. He remembers clearly how Ian, still at school, had to stoop to get through the door. He came in a big trench coat, um, so you would never have said this was an 18-year-old boy coming in through the door. We'd always wondered why Ian even came to West Cork, to this place at the edge of Europe where he didn't know anyone. One day we got a text out of the blue from Ian saying we should speak to John. He wrote, he'll give you the IB backstory, as in the Ian Bailey backstory. And he has a V-good broadcast voice. But he, he was very confident. Uh, he, was, he was big and brash and bold. He impressed me. I, I saw real potential there from, from the off. A lot of people gripe about Ian in West Cork, but this is something we heard there too, that Ian could also be really charming. It's hard not having known him before he was accused of this horrendous crime, and not to have that colour our own view of him. Even still, you can imagine it. He's charismatic. Back in 1975, John had just started his business and was looking for someone with promise to train up as a full-time reporter. Ian got the job, and John paid for courses where Ian learned things like shorthand and media law. He taught Ian to write in new style and sent him to the Gloucester courts to cover crime. He took Ian under his wing. But Ian wasn't quite the diligent apprentice John was hoping for. Within months questioning my uh, view and my authority, my experience, I found him quite difficult to manage because he would decide for himself what he was going to do. But some of the social aspects of the job began to distract Ian from the actual work. Back in those days, regional companies looking for favourable coverage would throw drinks parties and put on lunches out at Gloucester Country Clubs sending invites out to all the local media. Ian was a fixture at these events, showing up at a moment's notice to hobnob and drain the free bar. It wasn't just Ian, all the young journalists loved going to these events. The only problem was Ian was meant to be out covering assignments. He would do the job well when he did do the job. I just wanted him to apply himself. And I, I just felt that he'd just got too big for his boots. One weekend, Ian was supposed to be out of town at an eight-week journalism course that John was paying for. Instead, he snuck into the office with some friends and threw a party. When John returned to the office on Monday morning, the place was trashed. There were empty beer cans everywhere, papers on the floor, and the scent of weed in the air. I was, I was absolutely appalled. I found it very hard to tolerate the idea of keeping him on after he would do something like that. Couldn't really understand quite how bad it was, you know, why I was making such a fuss. John decided that his working relationship with Ian had run its course. He, he actually told me that I made a big mistake, and you know, that, that, um, that he was the best thing that ever happened to me. And the next thing I knew, he'd set up as a freelance himself, just up the road in Cheltenham, uh, doing exactly the same kind of work that he'd, I'd taught him to do. So the way John saw it, he had trained Ian up, and now Ian was setting himself up as the competition. Again, Ian doesn't see the big deal. He told us that he deliberately set up in a separate town, Cheltenham, so he wouldn't be taking any work from John. John says inevitably there was overlap. 
The falling out was so serious, there was a time when John's wife wouldn't even have Ian's name mentioned in the house. John thought it was funny that Ian had suggested we speak to him. But then it kind of made sense to him. That's just Ian. He could be a bit clueless. I I don't think the concept would come to his mind that that he was actually making life difficult for somebody. And that, that doesn't surprise me that he would say that at all. I don't think he ever realised the upset he caused. This is Kay Reynolds, Ian's younger sister. He's always um, a very confident air about him. Certainly always thought outside the box. And, uh, I mean, I absolutely idolised my brother. He was just like my hero. Kay told us about life growing up with Ian in Gloucester, a small city surrounded by countryside in southwest England. She spoke affectionately about their parents. Northern working class, dad worked on the market. He was a butcher and um, uh, worked very hard. Mum stayed at home, looked after us and her mum. So there's tonnes of food around. Um, Not a lot of money, but loads, always loads of food. But Kay says there was tension at home. And he was, he's definitely, I'd say, I don't know, a bit different. Ian did well at school. He had the marks to get into the prestigious Crip Boys Grammar School, but he was on the rugby team and fell into the drinking culture around the sport. Ian's parents weren't drinkers, and they weren't sure how to handle it. You know, they, they, they didn't understand. I don't think they quite understood him. His behaviour seems so sort of out of character to our, the rest of our family. Kay says she'd overhear her parents' worried conversations about Ian when he was out partying. Just wondering where he was, or if he didn't come home... So, so I were overcompensated by being the good one because I used to see that they'd be upset and I wouldn't want to call. So I never rebelled. And, um, and I resent, almost like resented Ian for that. <laughs> In a way, um, you know, as I grew older, that I'd never had that, you know, I didn't want to upset them as well. I certainly think um, they were glad when he left home. Years later, when the guards confiscated Ian's diaries from his home in West Cork, they found lots of entries about drinking, which took on an increasingly destructive role in Ian's life. He wrote, My first experience of alcohol was drinking shandy with my father. My father, a butcher, a stout man, was never a drinker. I remember more than once he complained of a feeling of dizziness as he supped his lemonade and pale ale shandy cocktail. I've definitely not inherited his aversion. I've been making a fool of myself by drinking to excess. After John let him go, Ian left his parents' place and moved to Cheltenham, an affluent town. He fell in with a group of young journalists who hung out at a local cafe and traded stories. Viv Hargreaves was in that group. He was a, you know, sort of rising star amongst us. A focused go-getter, brilliant journalist who's got a really bright future ahead of him. Tall, dark and handsome, very, you know, sort of very charismatic. He'd even managed to sort of whip stories off me, which is unheard of, really. George Henderson was another local journalist. He met Ian while covering court news. Six foot four, uh, quite a dramatic sort of eyes on him, deep voice, you know. <clears throat> and um, he came across as very sort of um, capable and very persuasive. Ian managed to charm George so much he convinced him to quit his job as a staff reporter and go into business with him. The two of them worked well together. George is the main writer and Ian is the salesman. 
George says Ian was particularly good at getting the best price and placement for their stories. Then they got a big scoop, a juicy national story about a Cheltenham cab driver who turned out to be a British spy secretly working for the Russians. Ian and George were at the right place at the right time. Ian made contact with the investigative unit at the Sunday Times, back then the UK's paper of record, and worked with them as a local correspondent on the story. It was a huge success for a 22-year-old. He made the most money he'd ever make that year. He was really set on sort of working up from his roots. His dad was a local butcher. He wanted to really make his mark. Um, He was very keen to be a go-getter. Flushed with success, he met a girl, another young reporter, Sarah Limbrick, and they married the next year. His new wife's parents owned property all over Cheltenham, and as a wedding gift, they gave Ian and Sarah a house. A grand old house with great beamed ceilings and a lake behind it. Viv said Ian and Sarah became a sort of Cheltenham power couple. Ian's sister Kay says he even changed the way he spoke. I don't know whether he actually went to speech lessons or uh, elocution lessons, but he certainly lost his uh, northern accent deliberately uh, in terms of wanting to be able to portray himself with a certain persona. Yeah, it was just part of what he is, you know, who who he's becoming as a journalist. It was all to do with his work. His friend George saw it as part of a complete transformation. He wanted to impress people. George remembers going to an upmarket wine bar one day and rather than the customary beer, Ian ordered them a bottle of champagne. He said, let's sit in the window, then people will see us drinking champagne. You know, I mean, all of our friends got faults, haven't they? He just had a bit of an ego problem. He just, he just liked, to, he liked to show off. Fine, that's Ian, you know. He wanted all the little the prizes. He wanted the cars, he wanted to get a big detached house. So he, he, he had all the trappings, but it wasn't actually his. things went wrong with the marriage and that unfortunately was the sort of undoing of Ian here in this country. One Christmas, George stayed at Ian and Sarah's. He learned they were sleeping in different parts of the house. They separated soon after. I think he was genuinely heartbroken. And, and then he, he, would, he would get angry and I remember back banging the steering wheel of the car. And why is she doing this to me? During the divorce, Ian discovered that his name wasn't on the deeds to their house. He ended up walking away from the marriage with much less than he thought was fair. When the guards spoke to Sarah after the murder, she told them that Ian would punch the wall, turn over tables, or throw the typewriter across the room. And Ian admitted the separation had been acrimonious. I think he was troubled in general and very angry because he could probably see his world falling apart um, and his relationship falling apart and everything he'd made. And I think you're very ambitious. There's a huge sense of failure and guilt and all that sort of business starts to creep in. And as soon as you've got those toxic things mixed with drink and other other substances, um, you've got problems. I think when people ring you up with a boozy voice on Desperate, you know that it's not a good thing. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's obviously he, he was showing signs of, of cracking up. 
Ian started spending less and less time at the office. Then his business partner George says he made a discovery about their affairs. Money Ian and George made on stories was meant to be shared equally, but George says when his paycheck bounced, he took a closer look at the accounts and realized that Ian had been skimming a little off the top. When we asked Ian about it, he said it's so long ago he doesn't remember the details, but that he has no memory of this. George says he didn't even have to formally break with Ian. It was a loose partnership with no legal ties, and Ian seemed to lose interest in work anyway. He wrote George out a check, and after that he started disappearing on random holidays. One afternoon back in Gloucester, he stopped by Viv's house. She said he was in a giddy mood. He'd been to Wales, I think, and he'd, he'd been to some beach and found this great big rock, and he was so impressed with it, he brought this rock in his boot to show us. <laughs> he went out to the boots, he lifted the boots up and said, look at this fantastic rock, you know, you must see it. Uh, yes, Ian, it's a really nice rock, but it was only a rock. And I thought, Ian, what's going on here? You know, what's, what's happening here? And he was saying, oh, and I've got some really good cannabis. And, and then I sort of realised that he was sort of going off in a little bit of a tangent in his life. I think he'd probably agree with what I'm saying. And that's really the sort of last time that we saw him. Ian was someone Viv liked. She told us funny stories about him at parties in fancy dress, and she admired him professionally. But in a few years, Ian had gone from an ambitious young man to this spaced-out dude with big shiny rocks in the back of his car. Viv and Ian lost touch after that. George saw less of him too. Ian sold his flat in Cheltenham and moved to London. In London, he tried to hook back up with those Sunday Times people who he'd met as a bright young reporter, when the contacts seemed to offer unlimited opportunity. He did work in the newsroom for a stint and freelance for national newspapers, but none of these places offered Ian a full-time position. Ian would later say in court, London, I hated. Nobody, you couldn't speak to anybody. Excerpts from his diaries from around this time were read out in court too. I feel as though I've suffered an illness of confusion. What began has now ended, therefore I have a new beginning. I will not be able to rest easy for some time until all is done to free me of the shackles of materials and consumer society. Later, he added, I feel self-loathing, a hatred of myself. I must expunge these feelings. I was becoming increasingly disillusioned with the way newspapers were going. And um, I, I came, I decided I was going to come over to Ireland and seek a, a sort of different way of living. It was the winter of 1991. Ian Bailey was 34 years old. He'd abandoned journalism and begun writing poetry. Sitting in St Stephen's Green in Dublin one day, the home, as he wrote in his diary, of Joyce and Yeats, he wrote, There's an atmosphere of sedate style and comfortable living. The problem is that I have no home or base. At the same time, I have no money. I've always been an outsider. That year, he'd been wandering through Ireland, picking up manual work where he could. He spent a few months on a farm, where his job was to ward crows off the crops with a shotgun. Then he drifted west, travelling alone until he reached Skull. I can just remember thinking how wonderful a place it was. And I was struck by the friendliness of the people here. And I guess I fell in love with the place. 
Ian got a job at a local fish factory, working on a line processing herring. He says he had a kind of supervisory role. Why did they hire you? Oh, I, I think that was because I was an outsider. And a lot of the people who were working there would have been related. And I think what they wanted was they wanted somebody who was an outsider who wouldn't show uh, undue favour to, to any one person. I was actually, I enjoyed it in as much that I was the only English person there and I was completely immersed with Irish people. And I felt in a sort of interesting position because of that. Um, it, it was full of incident and uh, humorous. There were occasionally, there were fights on the floor at a fish plant. I remember I had to break one up one day. I had to, two guys going at each other with shovels and I had to grab their shovels out of the air and disarm them. And it was inspirational because, I mean, it gave me material to, you know, I, I wrote a poem about it. Erin's Herring, do you want to hear it? Go on. Okay. In November of each year, herring shoals of plenty do flow up Erin's southwest rugged coast. Coats of silver... If you lived in Skull in the mid-1990s and went to the pub during that time, it's a good bet that you're familiar with some of Ian's poetry. Here they come, boys. Stub out your fags, stand back in awe and watch the slaughter. And if the man from Tokyo says yes to bellies full of gold, then Christmas time will be less cold. But many is the day when the gale of... Ian penned dozens of poems around this time, mostly about life in West Cork. There's a poem about enjoying a pint after Sunday Mass, another about fancying the pub owner's daughter. There's one called The West Cork Way. It's about doing odd jobs to make ends meet in a seasonal economy. Ian wrote these poems with performance in mind. A couple of them even have actions. One only makes sense with a pint glass as a prop. So we'll wait another day, damning the lack of accursed pay hoping that tomorrow will bring a hundred million silver things to keep us busy on the land. Oh, great captain, would you lend a hand? Shin Shin. Within a few months of coming to West Cork, Ian met someone, an artist, Jules Thomas. She came into the fish factory. Ian was still writing his poetry, but hadn't given up his day job at the factory. Jules remembers asking for a fillet of place. Ian remembers it as Black Soul. Whatever it was, they clicked. Jules lived a quiet life, raising her three daughters on her own up at the prairie cottage. She'd had two unhappy relationships behind her, and suddenly here was this younger man, full of life and confidence, taking Jules out to the prairie and down into the pubs to music sessions and poetry sessions, and she loved it. I'd never gone out with the other um, father, with the, the girls' fathers. First of all, they'd never thought of getting a babysitter or anything. I didn't go out for years at all, ever. So yes, going out was nice. Ian began as Jules's tenant. He needed a place to stay, so she offered him lodgings down at the little house about 100 metres down the road from her cottage. It belonged to Jules's mother, but no one was living there, and Jules had just been using it to store paintings. She called it the studio. Eventually, Ian would move up the laneway to live full-time at the main cottage. But back in 1996, he was living between the two places. He'd gone very young into a very high-pressure job and hadn't had that proper time to grow into the responsibilities he bore, if you like. So he sort of did everything in the wrong order in life. 
But I mean, he's, he's done the same things, it's just that they're in a different order, you know. So effectively, he had his sort of teenage or wilder years over here when we were together first. Ian's sister says her parents were happy when Ian got to West Cork, happy because he seemed happy, that he felt he was fitting in. He just felt it was great to know he felt he belonged somewhere. He loved Ireland, he loves Ireland. Um, and he really, really settled very, very, very quickly. And, uh, you know, I remember my parents, you know, they would have been happy about that. Um, yeah, it was just how part of him fitting in, I think. But people who spent time with Ian in Skull back then say he wasn't really fitting in. He's probably his own worst enemy because he is a very extrovert type of person. Jim Duggan is Ian's barrister. He joined his case about a year after the murder. He doesn't and didn't do things to make himself loved within the community. He, he was a person who, I suppose, was brash in his manner. I, you know, Irish people in a small community like that would have felt that um, he was, well, he was the Sassanok as well, uh, which means the Englishman. It wasn't just the fact that Ian was English. There were plenty of English people in West Cork. But there was a right way and a wrong way to go about things. Look, and, well, we do get a lot of English people who come over here to show us how to do it properly, you know? Leo Bodge is also a blow-in, but he's Irish. And he found Ian pompous and overbearing. People that, yeah, think they know better, you know, or better educated or whatever it is. He didn't actually seek to blend in. Always struck me from day one that he wanted attention on him. Nadine O'Regan met Ian working on a community film project as a teenager. I strongly believe that anyone who would have encountered him would have seen him to be a character that did seek for more than he currently had, that was desperately ambitious uh, but didn't have a clear direction or a clear success level, and that would have been frustrated frustrated by that. I couldn't see that any other way. Leo's partner Sally remembers Ian flitting between different identities in West Cork. And one moment he calls himself Owen, whatever the Irish to his name, and then he was the organic gardener and the thespian and the journalist. You know, so I think he was kind of shuffling different roles to kind of find different social circles and to be recognised in some way as well. As a journalist, Ian changed his voice. Now as a West Cork poet, he had a whole new look. Bill Hogan remembers seeing Ian standing in the main street in Skull with a big staff and a cloak. I said to myself, what is this? Dude, this is like some hippie on an acid trip, I said. You know, this is unbelievable. He sees himself in a, projected very large on the stage. He is one of these uh, attention seekers, you know. Bill is originally from New York. He came to West Cork to become an artisanal cheesemaker. He said that West Cork is full of eccentric alternative types, and even in that crowd, Ian stood out. For people who don't know, it seems like it's pretty strange if you're in, in a bar, in a pub, some guy stands up and starts reciting poetry, it would be a pretty odd sight. But here, maybe not, not so it's much. It's Ireland. It's not England. People yeah. do that here. Okay. It's perfectly all right. People do recite and 
give her, get up and sing a song or anything. It's acceptable. But Ian just pushes it. He does it in the butcher shops, you know. But despite all this, Ian did find people who were drawn to him, curious about him, and willing to take a chance on him. Like John Montague. My name is John Montague, and I seem to be a poet. <laughs> and I'm um, Elizabeth Wassell Montague, and married to John, and uh, a novelist. John wasn't just a poet. He was the first poet to hold Ireland's chair of poetry, the equivalent to Poet Laureate. When he died just before Christmas 2016, his poetry readings were played on the radio and the newspapers carried long, affectionate obituaries. John and Elizabeth told us about the first time they met Ian. He was wearing a white suit, mingling at the after-party for an art launch in a pub when he sidled up to them both. He had long hair then, bound back in a ponytail. I took him in, a, a kind of tall, young Englishman. I rather liked the look of him. This handsome young man, handsome youngish man. Ian told John he was going to be a poet, but for now he was working part-time as a gardener. He gave John and Elizabeth his business card, and they hired him. Years after John Hawkins had taken him on, Ian had found a new mentor, a new John. You know, I, I've been a teacher for a long time, and so it's a habit that I can't break, I suppose. John seemed to look on the gardening as a lesson in patience, a bit like Mr Miyagi in The Karate Kid, watching his apprentice wax cars. But if it was a test, Ian flunked. So he didn't seem to be a successful gardener. He seemed to be an impatient gardener, slicing at things. I could see that he wasn't a, that he wasn't a born worker. He didn't seem, didn't seem prepared to learn, to learn. He was impatient. It was kind of the same deal with the poetry. I mean, it was somebody who hadn't worked and didn't know how to work and didn't want to work, just wanted the result. But even so, you tried to help him. John said to him, well, the, the poems read a little bit like ballads or songs. Maybe um, you should think of them as little melodies. Or, but he, he, uh, he, he just wouldn't listen. He, I remember when you, you were standing at the kitchen counter and he actually turned away. All he, I think he just wanted John to lavish praise on the poem. So when he was judicious and critical, Ian didn't even want to listen anymore. A few years after the murder... John and Elizabeth wrote a long article for The New Yorker about their experiences with Ian. In the piece they wrote of Ian's poetry that there was a glimmer of talent there, but it needed a level of discipline which he seemed unprepared to give. Adding later, he seemed to prefer the immediate gratifications of the pub's indulgent audience to the tedious, concentrated work of a serious writer. To the outside world, Ian was flitting between interests. He briefly joined an environmental collective, an acting troupe, a group of traditional Irish storytellers. He tried being a screenwriter. Under the bluster and arrogance, Ian was actually in turmoil. His diaries from that time portray him as a man approaching middle age, looking to make something of himself, to be accepted and taken seriously. He complains of being lazy in his diary. He says, I know that the core of me wants to shine and not be seen as a foolish bowsy. We can't be sure whether Ian took it hard when John Montague criticised his poetry. Ian wouldn't talk to us about John. But John once gave him a typewriter as a present, an old black Olivetti. 
And today there's an old bashed-up Olivetti typewriter perched on a wall in Ian's garden, with grass growing up through the type bars. We once asked Ian about it, and he said it was a sculpture, and that he'd used a hammer to smash in the keys. Judging by his diary from this time, it's like he's a step removed from himself, as if he's watching his life veer off course. I need to bring about great change, he wrote. I can see him in great moral danger. I need to somehow wipe out much of the old and bring about a rebirth. I think the alcohol has been puddling my mind. I've ritualized drinking and sacrificed my life to debauchery. Peter Lecky was pals with Ian back then. He knew Ian pissed people off, but said that Ian had a twisted sense of humour that he kind of appreciated. He could be great fun. And then... Yeah, just this incredible change. In the period before Sophie's murder, Pete said he was worried his friend was becoming seriously troubled. They'd all be round at the prairie, drinking into the evening, and Ian's mood would suddenly go dark. He'd start banging his fists on the table, talking about all the things that had gone wrong in his life, and being aggressive towards Jules and her daughters. It was, I think, what he would do if he was in a if he was in a particular frame of mind, then he would drink whiskey and. Some people can drink whiskey, some people can't. Basically, it was beginning to worry me somewhat about his, uh, his mental state. It became a sense quite quickly that there was a troubled person here, um, more than you'd realised. I think he just lost his way. News about Ian had reached his old friends back home, like Viv Hargreaves. So he'd lost it here before he ever went to Ireland. And Ireland was a, just an escape from the problems here. You know, to set up your own news agency is amazing. To um, run it and succeed and make a load of dosh out of it, which is what he did, um, again, is, is brilliant. And he was only in his early 20s then. He was very young. And so it was very sad... And in a way, it's a big shame he ran away. This is how I saw it. I know he, if he'd somehow managed to address everything, get help, sort himself out here, possibly, or, you know, in his, on his own territory, maybe he'd have, you know, the future wouldn't have happened. It would have taken a different future, would have a more sort of coherent future. Oh, there was another time. This is embarrassing. Remembering old times with Ian, a story popped into George's head from years ago. He was staying at Ian's place, sleeping in one of the spare bedrooms in the big country house. He came into my room where I was in his house and at four o'clock in the morning and he was in tears. He said, how come people like you? They don't like me. I was like, want to answer. And he woke you up to ask you? Yeah. And what did you say? Don't got a thing to answer. You're a six or four rugby player weeping by your bedside, you know. And I said, look, Ian, you know, people like you well enough. In 
In West Cork, too, people struggled to see past aspects of Ian's personality that simply put them off. But Ian gets that. He understands these things about himself. He just doesn't know what to do about them. There was a lot of Ian that was about the, the gloss of how he wished to be seen. He invented and reinvented himself several times. We have the country gent to be the kind of, you know, the wine bar in Lothario, <laughs> to the Celtic bars. What do you think he was trying to do with all that? Acceptance. I think he wanted to be accepted. I think, I think he wanted to be loved. There was something in him that, that felt unloved. And that's what he, I think that's what he was trying to do. Ian wrote in his diary about wanting to bring about a rebirth, like a change in his life. And then the murder happened. And we've often asked him why he didn't just leave West Cork. He says there wouldn't be anywhere he could go where the murder allegation wouldn't follow him. But he and Jules live a secluded life. They don't go out to pubs in the evening anymore. He introduced us to a guy in Bantry Market one day. When we asked Ian if he was his friend, Ian just said, I don't do friends. But Ian's a social animal. He loves company. He loves the buzz and the chat and the drink and the stories and the music of a night out. So it's hard to imagine that the life he now leads doesn't run against all his natural instincts. The summer that we were there, Jules had some paintings in a group exhibition of local artists at a small skull art gallery by the pier. And they invited us along to the opening one evening. The people there were a typical casual summer crowd. And then there was Ian, six foot four in a cream linen suit and comb back hair, standing alone by the wine and the snacks. You could say that it didn't look like he was making much of an effort to fit in, but you couldn't say that he didn't want to impress. He was glad we'd come, we chatted, and then he made his excuses with Jules and went off to the pub for a pint, taking advantage of being down in the town on a summer evening. When we drove up the main street about half an hour later, it had started to rain, but Ian was sitting it out with only his half-drunk pint for company on a bench outside a small pub on the corner. The pub opposite was heaving, but Ian knows he's not welcome there. Ian says this is all because of the guards, because they spread fear into the community and told everyone that he was the murderer. That's why he doesn't do friends. But Ian was kind of controversial even before the murder. In West Cork, Ian didn't really have people like George and Viv. People didn't really know Ian, and what little they did know, they didn't like. This big, brash Englishman with his cloak and his stick and his poems. So when the guards called Ian out, he found himself very much alone.
West Cork is an Audible original production, written and produced by Jennifer Ford and Sam Bungie. Produced in sound design by Kristen Muller, Alex Trajano, Robin Wise and Paul Schneider. Our theme music was composed by Shani Avaram. Our recording engineer is Sean Moher. West Cork is edited by Mike Olov. Our fact checker is Christine Baird. And Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom are the executive producers. This is Audible. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 